Welcome to day 38 of Crikey's Election Cast. It's Wednesday, the 18th of May. I'm Cam Wilson. Over the weekend, Scott Morrison had his chance to make his last big pitch to voters at the Liberal Party launch. Today, Anthony Albanese had his turn. In just a moment, we'll go to a conversation between Crikey's federal politics reporter Kishore Napier-Rahman and audience editor Imogen Champagne to debrief over Anthony Albanese's National Press Club address today. But before we do, just wanted to say we have a sale on at Crikey at the moment. It's going for another two days. Uh, if you visit our webpage and get all the details, but it is choose what you want to pay to subscribe. Uh, so a great chance to snag a deal if you've been eyeing off a Crikey subscription, which I'm sure you have. Okay, over to Kishore and Imogen. Three more days. Three more days. Yeah, I'm very excited for it to be over. And I bet you are even more. Absolutely. Can't wait to um, throw my phone into the sea when this is all done. But um, (laughs) yeah, we're just on the home stretch right now. Yeah. So you just come straight from Albanese's address. What did the opposition leader zero in on in the final couple of days of his election campaign? If, like me, you've been watching this stuff religiously, you've seen a lot of it before. In many ways, this was the classic Albanese stump speech. You know, there was attacking on, attacking Morrison for saying he's just warm, warming up, which is what he said the other day, um, going after Rorts, talking about Labor's stance on renewable energies and how they'd end the climate wars, how it'd bring people together, fix the childcare system and by, through making that more affordable. All of that is stuff that's in sort of Labor's platform that we've heard a lot. I, I want to just draw your attention to a couple of key things I thought were quite interesting here. Albanese both opened and closed this address with um, the Uluru statement um, to the heart. Um, and I thought that was quite telling. In, in fact, sort of near the end, you know, when he talks about, you know, good manners uh, tells you to ask them and hear them and listen to them, given our history since 1788, it was some of the most impassioned I'd heard Albanese throughout this campaign and for me there was an interesting contrast between that and the campaign launch address Scott Morrison made on Sunday you know that was another long speech where Morrison tried to sort of reset his campaign and inject a dose of energy but something that struck me coming out of that was was just how extraordinarily narrow and small his vision for Australia was you know his understanding is Australians they want a job and they want to buy a house and it didn't really look beyond that. It was so small. And for many people, yeah, sure, that is all you want. But in that clo- those closing minutes of Albanese's address, when he started talking so passionately about the Uluru Statement, it, it felt like a sort of a dose of, I guess, moral imagination that had sometimes been has sometimes been lacking, frankly, from what has been a relatively small target campaign on both sides. So uh, I guess that contrast to me was really interesting and maybe one of the more... more key moments out of the actual address that Albanese gave today. That is really interesting because, um, I mean, we're going to talk about the polls in a bit, but as most of our listeners will know, the most recent polls are showing a bit of a shift away from Labor towards the coalition. So I was, I was going to ask you, was there an air of desperation from the Labor camp today? But it sounds like it was quite different, quite uplifting. Was there any kind of um, pointing to the fact that the lead has closed? No, I think both Morrison and Albanese throughout this campaign, the way they've sort of conducted themselves in these kind of addresses in press conferences is sort of to tune all that polling stuff out to consider Mm -hmm. it sort of white noise in the background. Something I've noticed in how Albanese has been talking, particularly over the last few weeks as his polling, as his lead in the polls has remained steady, obviously we'll touch on today, the latest ones a bit later, but, but something I've noticed 
is an attempt to sort of project himself as a lot more kind of prime ministerial and kind of to rise above the fray, rise above the muck, um, but also to sort of stamp his own kind of brand of prime ministerialness on what he says. So, you know, there is a contrast in, in tone and style between him and Scott Morrison. Morrison famously called himself the bulldozer the other day and, and, and then, you know, said, oh, maybe I don't want to be the bulldozer again anymore. But actually, ever since then, he's been in full on bulldoze mode. That's how he is. He just like stares down the barrel of the camera. He delivers his lines, um, some, sometimes a little bit too forcefully. Albanese has gone for this kind of like, I guess, a slightly gent- more gentle sort of prime ministerialness. Um, you know, the way he sort of weaves in his personal story into everything to the extent that one of the questioners begged him not to repeat it um, today in one of those questions. You know, he has sort of asserted himself a lot more. And I think we saw a bit of that today. You know, I I didn't find any real hint of desperation or or, or reference to the polls. He was trying to lay out his vision for Australia and he was trying to lay out that vision in his own sort of language. And how did the press respond to this? Did he get any more gotcha questions from them today? Look, I came into this a bit worried that we would get sort of 20 questions on, Mr Albanese, where are your costings? Because that's all the press pack have been on about for the last two days. has been relentless kind of carry on about why Labor haven't released their costings. Um, Actually, uh, I'll defend uh, my colleagues at the press gallery. I thought a lot of the questions today were really quite um, uh, constructive. Um, and, and sort of policy focus. There were a couple of interesting ones about issues like foreign policy. Obviously, that's because Albanese said he'll be off to meet the quad leaders, I think, two days after the election if he's to win. Um, so there was a, a bit of that. It was interesting as well to see a question um, from The Guardian's Catherine Murphy on COVID deaths. Um, obviously, that has been continuing throughout this election campaign and hasn't really been discussed by the leaders. And today... Mm-hmm. Scott Morrison got a question on it and he tried to do this thing, um, which is, you know, the campaign he would have really wanted to run, which was to say, we're never going back to the days of daily press conferences and the threat of lockdown. I think Mr. Albanese would want to do that, which is rubbish. Albanese doesn't want to do that. He hasn't made any reference to wanting to do that. But, you know, that was the kind, that's the kind of attack line that I think once upon a time the Liberals would have wanted a campaign on. You know, Albanese did get a question on that today. I thought his response was fairly standard. He talked about having a comprehensive briefing and a national strategy to address COVID. But on the whole, you know, I thought the questions were, were fairly constructive. It covered issues like stage three tax cuts, the tone of what an Albanese government would look like. Um, so, yeah, weren't too many really cringe gotchas. And, and certainly the corollary of that is, and this is something that Labor will be encouraged about, of course, ever since that day one gaffe was so damaging to their campaign, Albanese handled the questions, I think, very well. There were no kind of obvious stumbles. There were no difficult moments that could, you know, be turned into attack ads for the government. Nice. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, Kishore, the polls have tightened up in favour of the coalition as we head into this final leg. Can you talk us through what the polls are showing and what what you think is behind this shift? Yeah, look, throughout the campaign, Labor's maintained a pretty solid lead. A couple of polls that have showed the tightening. So the, the big one from last night was the Resolve Political Monitor conducted for the SMH and the Age. That showed Labor's primary vote down three points from 34 to 31. And, and they're projecting that they're getting a two-party preferred of about 51-49 to the ALP. One comment we can make there 
One of the issues at the last election when the polls were comprehensively wrong throughout the campaign, one of the criticisms was perhaps pollsters had been doing what's called herding, which is any time they got a poll that sort of deviated from the established narrative of a Labor win, they sort of tried to kind of jig that up to, to, to or avoid that or bury that, right? Well, you know, this was a bit of an outlier, so probably not herding going on this time round. That said, there was also a bit of tightening in two other polls in the Essential survey, which showed a sort of narrow... Uh, fall on, on for, for a narrow a one point tightening so that's and and their sort of two party preferred would have put labor up 48 to 46 um and then there was a roy morgan that also narrowed a bit on the whole on average you've still got labor at a polling lead of about 53 47 so on the whole they're still in a reasonable position there are a couple more polls to come and i think we did expect these polls to tighten throughout the campaign in terms of what's causing that well it's worth noting about 20% or 15%, I think, of the electorates actually cast a vote early already. So mm. that's something we've got to get out of the way. But, you know, people kind of reverse engineer what's causing this. Maybe it was Scott Morrison's brilliant campaign launch. Maybe many Australians are buying this uh, unlock your super to buy a house kind of policy. Maybe that's kicking in. Maybe they're looking at the candidates a lot more closely. Throughout the campaign, the Liberals have maintained that they think a lot of the poll vote um, that there's going to labor is, is what's called soft. That is that it could flip. Um, that's not sort of hard and not, you know, they're, they're not stuck with, with voting for labor. Um, but, you know, we always sort of expect polls to tighten as the race goes on. Um, so it could be a number of factors, but the other thing to note is I think even from here, if Morrison does cling on to a narrow victory, and as we've pointed out throughout the campaign, that that path is very much still there. It's narrow, but it's there. If that happens, though, it would be probably a bigger, uh, bigger mess for the pollsters than it was in 2019. Wow. Um, you wrote about this earlier in Crikey today, but what are the marginal seats to watch out for on Saturday night? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so there are quite a few of them to, to get through. I'll, I'll break this down. Sort of, we'll start with the kind of labour key targets. So, you know, I look at Bass in northern Tasmania, which I think is the Liberals' most marginal seat. That's one on a 0.4% margin Liberals desperately wanted. Um, then there are places like Reed in Sydney, which, you know, Labor are really honing in on and think they've got a good chance. Boothby in Adelaide, which has been held by the Liberals since the 40s, but Labor now think they can win. Over in Victoria, places like Chisholm, with Gladys Liu being a very controversial Liberal candidate there, is a real target, very marginal again. Higgins as well in Melbourne, one that the Labor now think they've got a better chance on. Um, some other unexpected ones. Labor now think that Benelong, John Howard's old seat, on a 6.9% margin is very much in play. So that will be one to watch on election night. Um, and, and, of course, there are seats like Swan, Pierce, and maybe even Haslock in WA that Labor have their eyes on. Now, the interesting takeaway from the Labor seats is that so far... There's a feeling in both camps that maybe nothing could change hands in Queensland, which is really interesting because that's just how great the coalition's dominance in the 2019 election was. That's how big the swing against Labor was. There is talk that maybe places like Brisbane and Ryan could go to Labor. There's also talk about the Greens putting up a really strong showing in those seats and parts of inner Brisbane as well. Um, and then there are places like Longwood in the Brisbane suburbs, which which could go to Labor, but that's always one that is, is really hard to read. So Queensland could be messy and unpredictable as ever. It could be no change in that 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 state. I think actually Sydney and New South Wales is really going to be where this election 
kind of will come down to. Um, and that's true for the Liberals as well. Now, Scott Morrison's been to Parramatta in Sydney's West about five times. That's a key to what I call Morrison's sort of suburban strategy, which is they're projecting some loss to teal independence in sort of wealthier parts of the cities. Um, and he's trying to offset that by targeting sort of outer suburbs and regional centres. So Parramatta and Sydney's West, Karangamite around Geelong, Gilmore on the south coast where the Liberals have Andrew Constance, a former New South Wales state minister, as their kind of star candidate. A few under the radar ones like Lingiari out in Northern Territory, which is which covers like all of the Northern Territory barring Darwin. So it's absolutely huge. But that's one um, that the Liberals are sort of talking up a little bit. There's also maybe whisperings about some of these outer suburban Melbourne seats um, where, you know, there's this maybe anti-Dan Andrews kind of backlash and a high UAP primary vote through people pissed off about lockdown. So, look, there are seats that the Liberals could win back off Labor. That's the, the point to take away from this. And actually, Labor has far more marginal seats on its column right now than the Liberals do. So, look, there is a path to victory at this point. You know, Labor is still probably favoured, but a path to victory for Morrison. Um do we want to talk about the teals? I think we can talk about the teals, right? Absolutely. We'll talk about the we'll teals. Talk about the teals. We can't not talk about the teals. So obviously mm-hmm. all of that, the big wild card is that the, the, the teals, these independents could have, you know, are mounting very strong threats to the Liberals in their old heartlands. So, you know, wealthy parts of Sydney, Melbourne, even Perth. Um, so Josh Breidenberg's got that challenge from Monique Ryan in, in Kuyong. That'll be really key to watch and I think no one's really there's no real consensus on which of those seats are most likely to fall um and 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 for the liberals to lose I think Goldstein in Victoria where Tim Wilson's facing off against the former ABC journalist Zoe Daniel could be really close um North Sydney again could be close Wentworth another really tight one McKellar even on the northern beaches um you know that that also could go down to the wire and even recently julie bishop's old seat in, in perth curtain um there's polling overnight that suggests that um the independent candidate kate cheney could win there now if the, the, the at their best the teals could win maybe four or five seats that would be a tremendous result for all these independents and it would be devastating for the liberal party scott morrison would not be prime minister basically if that happened even at best if they win one or two seats makes that path to, to re-election for Morrison increasingly difficult. He's got to go through the suburbs. He's got to win through that suburban and sort of regional strategy. Um, so, you know, all the dominoes have got to fall the right way for Morrison to be re-elected, but that path is still there. Still open. Kishore, on Saturday night, will we know quickly? Will it take ages? Will it be days? How do you think it's going to play out? Oh, it's tough. I think we could be in for a long night, especially if these these polls continue to narrow, then it could be a while before we have a kind of definitive result. You know, if, if there is a kind of consistent national swing that we can figure out or a consistent state-by-state swing, we can sort of work that out earl- a bit earlier. But, you know, the polls close at six uh, in the East Coast and those WA results won't come out for a bit longer because they don't close for for two more hours so really mm-hmm. especially if wa starts it, it becomes key could take a while um i for my saturday i'm hoping we have a result on saturday night but don't rule anything out at this point especially if there's a hung parliament we could have days of negotiation to go wow it could go on for even longer um, just what we great. want to hear just what we want we'll leave it there for today thank you so much for joining us kishore my pleasure imogen see you on the other side absolutely
That was Crikey's federal politics reporter, Kishore Napier-Rahman, talking to our audience editor, Imogen Champagne. Thank you for listening to Crikey's election cast. As always, we are rapidly approaching the end of the election, and we will be here with you all the way. Just a reminder, if you haven't already, please give us a review on the podcast platform that you use. And also, we have a sale at the moment. Choose what you want to pay. You can get that at the website at crikey.com.au, along with all our other coverage of election and things outside the election as well. So I highly recommend you check it out. Thanks to Jack for all his production work, and we'll be back in your ears tomorrow.